Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside Podcast. My name is Ginny Urich and so fortunate to be sitting across for the second time from Nicholas Carderis. Welcome. Thank you, Ginny. Nice, uh, nice to be on the show. Thank you. We connected last year over your book that you wrote in 2016 called Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids and How to Break the Trance. It's one of our most downloaded episodes to date, and it has so many impactful things in it. And just six years later, you have come out with a new book called Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. And it was so interesting to have read both books and to see such a stark difference. How much has changed in six years, just six years? Did you feel that way? Well, you know, very much so. When I when I wrote Glow Kids, the battle then, the uphill battle then was to really essentially convince people that our technology can be habit forming, right? And that and and that we can get addicted to our tech, that our love affair for our technology was potentially unhealthy, especially for children. And I really sort of tried to put all the the clinical research together to show, wait a second, our shiny devices might be impacting our kids. Cause we we as the adults were all so smitten by our smartphones and our shiny tech that we weren't realizing maybe this was not not all that glitters is gold sort of thing and and that you know been there done that because now that's been in the, in the accepted uh clinical disorder i think we won that battle where people i think do realize even with everything from the social dilemma documentaries where the people that are behind the curtain pulled back the curtain and said oh yeah yeah this is habit forming by design but now the larger question was, is what what is this habituation doing to our society? Um, so we can check the box that these are addicting, but now what? And, and that's really what's, I think, evolved and changed has been the landscape of our society, politically, um, psychologically, how we interact, how we are as human beings has totally transformed in a sh- fairly short period of time. And that's what this new book is about. Both books have really transformed my personal life. I read Glow Kids years before you and I got a chance to talk. I actually never imagined that I would get a chance to talk with you, but I know that there are families all over the world who have been so transformed and yeah. and it was so eye-opening. It was cutting edge at that time too. I think a lot of people were floored to read the things that you knew and and brought forth. And like you said, now a lot of things like Social Dilemma have given light to that. And I feel the same about digital madness. There were so many things in there that I was not aware of. Both books have such an incredible depth for helping us understand our families and helping us understand our lives. They're ones I treasure and I'm so glad to have on my shelf. Something I noticed different between the two that was really interesting to me is that you inserted a whole lot of humor into digital madness to the point that on top of it being filled with all this interesting information, it was really funny and amusing. And I felt like it was such a breath of fresh air because the topics are heavy. Right. So I loved I loved that. It was it was like this amusing nonfiction, which is hard to write. There was a I, there was one part I wrote one example here, but you wrote the irony was rich, not as rich as the assembled tech titans, of course, but you get the idea. So all of these little quips yeah. in there that I thought did a great job of lightening the mood because the topic is heavy and has just gotten heavier over time. So well done. The book is a fantastic read, not only informative, not only thought provoking, but also amusing. And so to have paired all of that together is incredible. Well, in in my field, we we do call that gallows humor because, you know, sometimes you do have to lighten the mood. You know, I go to my wife likes to kind of elbow me sometimes, you know, we'll go to a you know, party or a social event and, you know, people will ask me about my work and sometimes we'll get going on it. And it's, you know, it feels like, wah, wah, okay. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't want to bring down the mood of the room because it can, it can get depressing. Sometimes. So you have to keep our sense of humanity and humor, I think is critical because that's one of the antidotes or else, you know, that is really kind of what I'm fighting for. And, and I'm, and I'm glad you said that about glow kids because one of the most gratifying things, you know, when I wrote that book and the response that I got from all over the world, from families that were struggling and had been gaslighted from mm-hmm. um, either mental health workers or peers and friends and really found a voice in 
yeah, this is what, what I've been seeing with my kids and nobody was speaking to this. So that was mm -hmm. one of the most gratifying pieces to see how it was mm -hmm. helping connect and change and impact people from all over the all four corners of the globe. So that yeah. was really nice to see. Yeah, both books are so phenomenal. Can you tell us what health trends are showing up that we can mostly attribute to this increase in technology? Yeah, well, the, the first most, you know, the outer layer of the onion or the most obvious one is the increased depression. Um, depression is spiking at a time when our antidepressant medications is significantly increasing. And if you were to look at a at a bar graph of the prescriptions that we're writing for depression and versus the increase of depression, our depression is outpacing the the huge spike that we, we you know, we've by some estimates, we've tripled or quadrupled the SSRI prescriptions that we've been writing over the last 10 to 15 years, and yet depression is outpacing our prescriptions. So something's happening that we're much more depressed as a, as a society, as a species. And, and again, as I write in the book, I attribute a lot of that to our highly um, technological, over-mechanized, dehumanizing kind of the way that we're living. So, so depression is the first and foremost. And then of course, depression is the handmaiden of things like suicide and self-medicating through addiction. Because you know, if you're going to feel depressed about the world and life here, you may react in other ways as well. So, depression does drive other types of problematic behaviors. So, I would say that on a superficial level. But then, you know, as you dig deeper, as I write about in the book too, we're having these um, social contagion effects where we're having. That was the one I think that. A, a lot of people were underappreciating. We saw that really over the last couple of years were influencers that were getting really popular with psychiatric disorders like dissociative disorder, what we used to call multiple personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, um, and of course the gender dysphoria piece were, were skyrocketing and, and then or the one that got a lot of media recently was the Tourette's piece, TikTok Tourette's that got written up in Rolling Stone and some other national media picked it up, uh, the Wall Street Journal. Um, young teenage girls beginning to show signs of Tourette's disorder. And, and it was a perfect example of this social contagion effect because these young women did not have Tourette's disorder, but their pediatricians discovered that they were um, following these Tourette's influencers on TikTok and were beginning to consciously or unconsciously mimic their psychiatric symptoms. And that was an interesting phenomenon. That was a head like, oh, wow, look what's happening here. Because mm. we've always known that we're a social species and that we mimic each other, right? Like smoking is a social contagion. If you hang out with 30 people who smoke, the odds are you're going to start smoking at some point. Um, suicide can be a social contagion that happens in clusters. People sort of begin to um, emulate that because we know as a social species, we mimic each other. But the fact that people were beginning to mimic um, psychiatric symptoms of their influencers and that these influencers were getting literally billions of views. Um, and that part was also interesting because they, it made me have to analyze social media in terms of the um uh, the hierarchy of it how does it work and, and so what you realize is that in social media who gets the most views and who gets the most followers it's the most performative the most over the top the most um entertaining so the thoughtful mm -hmm. uh the thoughtful person who's got an uh, you know, wants to share their views about something is going to get two views and the most over the top histrionic, you know, um, dancing, dancing yeah. or, 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 or the more mentally ill, like, like the part that I really found interesting was the DID, the dissociative disorder influencers who claim to have over a hundred altered personalities, you know, a hundred multiple person, which look in the real clinical world um, did is a real thing typically you've been sexually abused as a child and historically you'd have three or four alter identities you know some of us remember the classic movies with um sybil or three faces of eve with joanne woodward where um three or four personalities are were protecting the main the main ego with through this mm -hmm. alter because it was a, a defense mechanism against um a reality that a person couldn't tolerate. But now you are having these 
really performative histrionic DID young people who were saying that they had a hundred identities and, and the popcorn moment, there are hundreds of millions of followers were following what was called switching. Like the, the entertaining piece when you would switch from personality A to personality B and, and then their followers were also beginning to identify that they were having alters as well. So that was, wow, we're, this is what we're spreading online now. We're spreading this kind, these kinds of issues. So that was new, relatively new. Right. Well, these are the things that I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of the TikTok Tourette syndrome. And I think mm -hmm. that's what you've done in your book is you have done such a good job of being out in the forefront and saying, this is what's going on. This is something that you might not have heard of beyond the depression, beyond mm -hmm. the lack of movement and all of these other things that there mm -hmm. are, like you said, these social contagions. One of the things you talked about in terms of social media was that anger cells. Oh, anger cells. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know, I've really grown to perceive social media now as almost a living organism. Uh, it's almost this thing that, that thrives and grows more powerful when we feed it our lizard brain, most vitriolic emotions, right? So we, we type in behind, you know, the keyboard warriors will, will key in whatever. Um, the keyboard acts almost as a gateway to a person's id or their lizard brain, because now a person can really like let loose with their most ugly or, or, or again, more, most extreme emotions. So they feed into this thing called social media. Social media absorbs all this vitriol. And then because of the, the nature of algorithms and feeding people back content that they, the, the algorithm thinks the person wants, and then the extremified way called the extremification loop. So now all of a sudden we feed the beast all our anger and, and extreme emotions, and then the beast takes it, spits it back at us in the more extreme way, and it becomes a vicious feedback loop. So now if I'm, you know, hating on whatever, left, right, doesn't even matter. Well, this is one of mine. One of mine is using balloons. People get really mad about that. And so do they get mad about stacking rocks and painting rocks? And people always say, well, you're in the nature people, field, wait, so there's I, nothing. I don't, wait, 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 Ginny, I don't understand. People get mad about balloons? What? About balloons because they're one-use plastic. So we years ago oh, we filled okay. <laughs> we filled balloons with water. We fill, in the winter we fill balloons with water and and food coloring. And you leave them out overnight, they turn into these beautiful. They look like glass marbles. You can play with them. They're these colored wow. ice orbs, basically. And it's a real fun thing to do in the winter. Well, who knew people got really mad so you about got, that? You, you got hate on that, huh? Wow. Yeah, and just different things that you don't even balloon realize. Hate. Yeah. Balloon I, hate. I, I hear yeah. the word balloon, and I smile, and then I couldn't even. I wasn't connecting the dots <laughs> yeah. that there was a hate group behind balloons because of yeah. the plastic. But what's interesting, like you said, is that those are the posts that skyrocket because yeah. they hit someone's primal emotion. They're going to make sure that, that they comment because this is single-use plastic and you're not helping the environment. In fact, you're harming it. So Right, but there's that other dynamic right there too. There's this other complex and not so subtle dynamic where now we're creating so much reactivity and so much, uh, you know, everybody being offended, right? And I talk about that quite a bit in the book that we've lost our resilience and we've lost our sense of um common sense and mooring. So because of our young people are being raised in this sort of emotionally reactive landscape, let's call it the digital landscape, and which now is priming them all to be hypersensitive and, and, and you know, everyone's, um, again, I hate to, to stereotype it, the stereotype is based on reality. You have young people, because I, I work, my treatment program in Austin works with 17 to 30-year-olds, and the triggering and fragility that we're seeing that you'd never seen before. And, you know, so then I had to do my deep dive analysis as to why is this generation so fragile and so easily offended? Why are balloons offending this group of young people? And so we've kind of shaped them into this now highly reactive, less resilient group because, you know, let's let's face it, resilience is born of having to struggle and work through things and having to persevere. And now you have um, young people that have been essentially helicopter parented oftentimes or bubble wrapped or protected and, and they're living in this sort of synthetic, you, you know, world where 
where again, the uh, cancel culture offended people. And that's just not a very healthy way to live because if everything's going to offend you, you're not going to be very happy. You're going to be constantly reacting. And so being highly reactive and the mm-hmm. underlying piece of that, which I think is a deeper psychological dynamic is this very extreme form of black and white thinking mm-hmm. that social media uh, creates. I think our young people, and I've had conversations with thousands of them, there are some of them that really cannot critically think and think in the realm of nuance that mm-hmm. you say a word or an issue and you go right to lizard brain reactivity uh, as opposed to, oh, let's have an informed discussion about whatever the topic may be, plastic in the environment for balloons or political or uh, spiritual. Let's have a conversation and let's let's do it with some thoughtfulness and critical thinking. You, that's almost disappeared. I was a university professor mm-hmm. for 10 years, and you saw it even just in the 10 years that I taught, how each cohort of students were becoming increasingly, increasingly fragile, triggered. And and again, these were the social media babies that were finding communities to kind of like, yeah, let's get upset about this, and let's get upset about that. And mm-hmm. wasn't leading to a lot of health and happiness when they were getting out of school, right? They weren't functioning well right. in the real world because- how do you live in the real world if every other thing is going to trigger you? Right. I thought that part was super interesting in the book. You call it binary dichotomous thinking, which yeah. is this hot or not, like, unlike mm-hmm. Coke or Pepsi, just the two option trap. I thought it was interesting, too, because right. you talk about how this technology is shaping us. And I have a brother that lives in New York and he's dating. And he says that he feels that the dating apps almost changed the way that you look at life and you look at Mm. dating. He said, you swipe. And so when you go on these dates, he said, it makes you feel like there's an endless dating pool. And Mm -hmm. so if you don't immediately connect or there's these small Mm -hmm. things, he said, you just go on to the, you swipe, you just go on to the next one. And so I thought that was really interesting. Well, this is part of your point of your book, which is how is this changing us? instant gratification culture relationships are work but now we've been conditioned to learn to swipe and you know we who wants to put in who wants to roll up their sleeves and work on a relationship when swipe left and you move on to the next one so in subtle and not so subtle ways it's really changing and and so you're perpetually going to be unhappy if you don't learn the skill set of patience hard work resilience grit grit is a big one i talk about in the book we've lost our ability to really stick to something and, and have some stick to and grit. And um, that's to our detriment. Right. I love how you wove your father into the book and connected to the past. You, you say a lot of the answers lie in the past. And one of my favorite lines was this, be here if you're going mm-hmm. to be here. Can you talk about the influences that, that your dad had on you yeah. and on this yeah. book? Yeah, my dad was a very um, hardworking, old school Greek immigrant, um, you know, who um, I always, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, I never understood how hard, I mean, he had an almost inhuman work ethic. He worked seven days a week, multiple jobs to support, you know, our whole family for multiple, for for decades. He didn't take a day off for decades. And, um, and I remember I used to think, what I used to look at him and I used to think, what, you know, because you know, I'm a kid and we're looking forward to the weekend, right? And I'm like, my, yeah. my dad doesn't have a weekend to look forward. What does he look forward to? Hmm. You know, how does he work so hard? And then I had to understand that I mean, he would look at me and he's like, what I look forward to you is your life, you know, your future. You know, his whole um, focus was supporting his family in a really um, a devoted way. And so he was also a chef and he was also a gardener. And, and, you know, and I wrote, I start the book like, you know, he's dying from pretty, uh, pretty painful bone cancer, metastasized bone cancer, and he's in a wheelchair and he can barely function. And even then he was still cooking. I mean, my, my wife and kids would go visit and he's in this wheelchair cooking these Greek elaborate meals. And I'm like, no, 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 let, like we're bringing food. And it was so important for him to, to do that. But, but but the larger point that's relevant to the book was, you know, he was con- sort of a time capsule from this earlier period where people lived much more 
um, honest or direct lives where you didn't, you know, you said what you meant and you, and you did what you said. And when um, you didn't understand, you know, and, you know, I, I kind of straddle both worlds, obviously I've got to, mm-hmm. and you know, that's when I mentioned about my phone, I'm visiting him and I've got work messages because I run this mental health clinic and there's always a crisis and he would shake his head and get angry at me and like put that damn thing down. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and just really stressed to me that you're, you know, and we, we would talk about some of the evolving things that were happening in 21st century America. He would just yeah. shake his head and say, Nico, not the way we were meant to live. And, and, and he was right. You know, we've evolved very quickly into a very unhealthy way of living. And like the frog in boiling water, as I write about in the book, we haven't realized it. We haven't realized that in the blink of an eye, we have removed ourselves from the, from nature, which I know is, Mm -hmm. is, is one of the theme here. We've been so disconnected from nature, from community, from real meaning and value because we've been distracted by our technology. So in the blink of an eye, we're not living the way fully embodied and self-actualized human beings should, but we don't even yeah. know it because we're in these little digital cages yeah. in the Stockholm syndrome captivity where we've fallen in love with Zuckerberg and Jobs and, yeah. and all our tech titans. And so they've got us trapped and we're in love with them and we're not even human anymore to, mm-hmm. to a certain degree. I love that your dad had this this foresight, this wisdom to understand what's really going on, that this is not the way we're meant to live. And so do you. It's a neat, that's a neat thread that you have had these books that are very cutting edge and very impactful around the world. You talk about this concept of promise versus peril, which is something I'd never thought about or heard about. Can you tell us what's the connection there? Um, but by the way, can I say one more thing about my my dad thing? It's funny because yeah. my my wife was like, warned me a little bit because you know it was an important pivotal point for me. And of course, now in the the world that we're living in, the political correctness. You know, my dad was an old white male from you know Eastern Europe, and my wife was like, oh, "Be careful," you know, kind of thing. And and uh, you know, and at, at a certain point, I had to say, "Look, you know, I am who I am. My father was who he is. I, I can't, I can't." filter that in any way i mean if i'm if this is the lens that has been my lens um that's my authentic experience i'm not going to not write about it because you know he's now part of the reviled white male european species and so that was that was you know something i was aware of i was conscious of that that somebody might say that it was in the multicultural perspective or or what have you um Promise versus peril is just basically the concept of when you're playing with fire, be careful that the fire doesn't consume you, uh, essentially. And when you're doing everything from trying to recreate black holes to gain-of-function viral research to um, any of the stuff that we're doing, including creating AI that can eventually be smarter than us and controls all the all the uh, all our systems of power. Um, by that, I mean, you know, all our grids, um, we're playing with fire and have we weighed out if things go sideways, what can happen? And, and, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I, I look at people and I try to understand people and I've known quite a few really smart IT people or scientists, and they are very myopic. Um, they are very obsessed with their scientific baby, whatever that may be, whether it's viral research or or genetic research or um ai research and and they are obsessed with giving birth to their baby and they're not thinking what happens if it goes sideways because they're a little bit ego consumed they want to give birth to their baby and they're not thinking about the peril versus the the promise of it they're just thinking of the promise of it and with a dash of egocentrism you know they want to they want to plant their flag and say i've created this and they're not you know let's switch it to the frankenstein metaphor they're not fully aware that the frankenstein monster can can now throw them over the uh, the side of the cliff if they don't uh, think it through wow it's interesting i think it ties in with this whole this whole tech gods piece which is you have great names for all the tech titans digital overlords megalomaniacs the technocracy and the new technocracy yeah the new technocracy and and we have these 
as a mom, was sort of just whatever, an everyday mom, I think, well, if I had that much money, I would just quit and <laughs> buy an island somewhere and invite right. people out and have good right. meals. So there's this disconnect where you think, why do they keep pushing forward? Why the metaverse? Why all of this when you have more money than anyone has ever had in the history of having money? Yeah. What is that? So initially, I stupidly thought it was just greed. Uh, There's a famous quote with J.D. Rockefeller, right? A reporter asked J.D. Rockefeller, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough money? And he said a little bit more. Yeah. And, and, and as an, an addiction psychologist, that speaks to the bottomless pit of there's never enough. If you're addicted to something, whether it's alcohol or money, there's never enough. And so initially, I naively thought, well, it's just good old simple greed. They just want more. You know, it's it's 100 billion is not enough. Bezos has to have more than Musk or Musk has to have more than Bezos. So it's got to be 200 billion. And then I realized, and it was really almost kind of by chance when I started reading uh, about the singularity and, and Ray Kurzweil, the Google high priest of the singularity. Um, and there was a really fascinating article in the New Yorker that talked about this longevity party that Sergey Brin and Larry Page were at. It was a really private little affair. It was a fundraiser that Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell were at. And it was all about, it was a group of uh, movie stars and IT super moguls. And the whole event was, how do we defy death? And, and they were investing large sums of money. In, I, I write about this in the Calico Corporation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of their investments were in biological life extension. How can we live in these biological containers for another 50 years? How can we extend life to be 150, maybe 200? Not because they wanted to get to 150 or 200, but because they understood that they needed to stay alive long enough to reach what they call, and this is their, this is almost um, 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 an ecstatic moment for them to reach the singularity, which is this next stage of what they view evolution. Ray Kurzweil writes about this in his book, The Singularity, and and he's a he's followed by Steve, uh, not Steve Jobs, by uh, by uh, uh, Gates. Gates is a big fan, as are the Google boys, Sergey Brin and Larry Page. They talk very. Um, openly about this new stage of evolution where in this sort of digital cloud or in some mechanism they're going to be able to transcend their biological constraints and live forever forever as a mind or something yeah look and i think at the end of the day the human species has been obsessed with trying to defy the grim reaper you know there was mm-hmm. the great book the denial of death back in uh, 1972 uh, ernest becker wrote the seminal book about where everything that human beings have ever done has been to refute our the 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 nagging reality that we all have that we're eventually going to die and so creating great works of art building skyscrapers uh, naming our, you know, having children and naming them our last names were, were ways to sort of live forever because there's a psychological need once we realize we're mortal because most animals don't have that daily reality. They don't have a developed prefrontal cortex that allows them to conceptualize next week, next month, next year. Uh, most animals are really Buddhist. They live in the moment. Mm-hmm. And, and so the animals at the top of the food chain like us who were able to conceptualize the future. Well, one of the things that that comes with that in psychology, we call that thanatos anxiety, death anxiety. And so that, you know, and some people have said, that's why we created religion. Religion became a get out of death free card, you know, in terms of immortality seeking. So in a certain way, we can understand the psychological desire to defy death. And so why wouldn't these five or six people who have are now essentially the most powerful humans that have ever lived why shouldn't they now think well we've used technology to solve every problem that we've tackled you know technology has been our sword let's use this sword now to solve the death equation but not for everyone you know they're not as concerned that we all get into that immortality but they're just concerned that they get into the life raft or get off planet you know it also explains part of their you know, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk's Mars colonization. They want to 
um, they want to get out of Dodge and, you know, kind of mm-hmm. a riffraff. The rest of us are wow. here to, you know, we're just here to kind of feed, you know, they need resources. They need resources mm-hmm. to get to the Holy land, to the Holy grail of what they're seeking for. So that part was really fascinating to me. Once I started yeah. reading some of Kurzweil stuff and some of their, you know, follow the money where they were investing. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is what they're obsessed about. This is what these, wow. and it made sense because so many scientists have God complexes and mm-hmm. this is a form of a God complex. Yeah. And what's, well, what's interesting, and you use the the phrase tech geeks, is that mm-hmm. they're kind of innocuous or they seem innocuous, these kind mm-hmm. of geeky guys and what could they possibly be doing? But you told the story of this cannibalization basically of diapers.com and you yeah chronicled through actually things that I was not aware of, which is this Foxconn and the Congo Cobalt mm-hmm. and, and this iMerit where they're teaching the AI software. And so mm-hmm. it really, there's such this front that they're just these geeky guys. And then you really expose this dark side, starting with that diapers.com story. So can you tell yeah. for people who don't know the other side of this? Yeah, you know, I think that part, and I write about it in Digital Madness, got really underappreciated because because they were so innocuous and nerdy looking. If they looked like Gordon Gecko from Wall Street, if they looked more ruthless, if they looked like J.D. Rock, if you ever see pictures of J.D. Rockefeller, he looks like out of central casting of hmm. mean old man that's going to take over the world. And as I write about J.D. Rockefeller, who was ruthless in his business tactics, you know, yeah. uh, standard oil took over 90% of the oil industry, but he controlled one commodity where meanwhile, our, our nerds are controlling everything. Mm-hmm. They're control. They're the gatekeepers of information. So, and they're controlling our behavior because they're shaping our behavior through their technology and predictive algorithms. So they shape how we think, how we buy, how we vote, how we live. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that they looked like the, as I wrote, the AV squad uh, back in high school, nobody felt threatened by them. And in fact, when they first sort of sprang forth in Silicon Valley and in Seattle where Gates was, they were counterculture heroes because, you know, the timing was hmm. the counterculture movement at the time. And and the big, the man, you know, the, the institutional technology titans at the time were IBM and Hewlett Packard. So here's the garage kids, you know, here's the, here's the, you know, the Stanford boys who developed Google and the garage and here's Bezos out of his garage and everybody's in the garage. And, and so they're like the underdogs. So initially everyone's like, yay, go underdog, go, you know, geek in the garage. He's trying to, you know, and, you know, Bezos started selling used books out of his garage when he quit his finance job. So again, nobody's threatened by them initially. And again, they look, Bill Gates, you know, the howdy doody look. And so no one's going to be threatened by that. And then all of a sudden you find their tactics were as ruthless, if not more ruthless than, um, than JD Rockefeller. Um, and so, and one example that I write about it was this diapers.com, which was just one of hundreds. Um, Bezos became obsessed with dominating um, the entire um, a retail market. And, and so small competitors that should have been insignificant little gnats on the Amazon empire had to be crushed. And, you know, one example was this little mom and pop um, discount diaper company. And, and he was determined to spend up to $200 million in losses to undercut their whole existence to drive them into oblivion. And, and this speaks to now monopolies and antitrust laws and how they've been skirting um, monopolies and antitrust laws. And, and Zuckerberg did the same thing. Zuckerberg had a, uh, conquer and uh, uh, absorb and conquer. You know, you you buy Instagram, you buy WhatsApp, you you take over the industry. Mm-hmm. And again, everybody's looking at them. Oh, look, 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 look at Zuckerberg. He's surfing in Hawaii, and he looks like this nerdy guy. And and meanwhile, like ruthless tactics are being used behind the scenes to either destroy or absorb companies to become ever more powerful. And meanwhile, none of us were really paying attention because, hey, look, I just got my new iPhone. Look how cool it is. Yeah. And uh, as these men were growing more and more powerful and more and more um, impactful in our lives. Yeah, you said, um, it was really interesting. You had this phrase, well, it was a quote, 
where someone had about the monopolies and someone had asked Zuckerberg to sell Instagram. This is too dangerous or there's too much mm-hmm. power here. And I can't remember the context, but what are the answers mm-hmm. here? And someone said, sell it. And he said, that's absurd. It's not going to happen. And my eyes were open to the ruthlessness of it because at diapers.com, they're starting in the exact same way that Bezos did. They're trying to sell diapers mm-hmm. out of their garage and he's making it so that no one can succeed in the way that he did after he's yeah. already this that, that Amazon. Was, that was Senator Hawley. Senator Hawley was talking to Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg had asked for a meeting with Senator Hawley because Hawley was now um, poking around and beginning to sniff. And you know there were Senate in the, in hearings about um, whether they should have antitrust protection and Section 230 liability protection. And, and Hawley, you know, meets with Zuckerberg and basically says, you know, you should start, you know, like like we broke up, big belt broke up into the baby bells. Like we knew that we shouldn't have just one telecom company. And similarly, what's happening now with Tekken, when he said that to Zuckerberg, sell what's happened, it was like, are you crazy? And there's mm-hmm. such a sense of immunity. Like they, they, they kind of go in front of Congress, almost like, you know, like seasonal periodically, they say the right things. We'll get back to you with those answers. We'll look at that. Yeah, you're right. Maybe. And okay. See ya. We'll see you this time next year for our next congressional hearing. But then nothing seems to happen because they're very strong lobbies. And, you know, going back to kind of what you were saying about their, 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 you know, you mentioned the part about Foxcom and the Congo was happening. You know, there's a third world exploitation that's happening. You know, you mentioned about the balloons with you that so many of our um, young um, 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 activists who are concerned about the environment and all these issues and who give you a hard time about plastic, they won't put down their iPhone, even though their iPhone uh, has a lot of blood in it, you know. Um, so, you know, so the two main, you know, so cobalt, you know, the cobalt industry is, is mainly out of the Congo and it's child labor and exploitation and, and a lot of deaths that happen there. And then of course, Fox, Foxcom, which is a 400,000 person factory city where the, the oppression, the dehumanizing conditions were leading to these weekly suicides, seven a week. And at one point, 150 people threatening to jump. I mean, you have so many people committing suicide at this factory that they put the suicide nets around it, as opposed to addressing the conditions. And, you know, when at the time when Steve Jobs was asking about what about these dehumanizing conditions at this factory that makes the iPhone, he's like, oh, no, no, it's, it's, you know, they've got, you know, like a restaurant there. And it's, you know, he made it sound like it was like the Google headquarters, which it wasn't. Right. And nobody wants to know how the sausage is made. Not most of us don't want to know what goes into my iPhone, but there's a lot of third world people that are getting ex- exploited from the assembly line workers at Foxconn to the Congo kids who are making the lithium batteries and to the AI uh, trainers mm-hmm. or um, third world people who have seen who, who, uh, these content moderators who have seen some of the most horrific imagery. Um, and who are now traumatized. And the only reason why these content moderators are outsourced to third world countries is because big tech doesn't have to pay for any lawsuits or for any um, psychological services. So when these folks get PTSD or commit suicide or break, because you can only watch so many baby rapes and and decapitation uh, videos without breaking, um, they, they just, you know, revolving door they just have the next one sit in the chair and we don't have to compensate their family where if they were u.s workers there'd be a whole different dynamic yeah you had said that the cost of an iphone if made here in the u.s would be thirty thousand dollars thirty thousand dollars and then you know what was really illuminating was when uh you read about how uh, tim cook talked about why that was and it was we don't have the supply chain here we don't have you talked very clearly about that for us to develop the infrastructure we're, we're like two decades behind china to have that infrastructure so if we just don't have it here i don't you know it would be thirty thousand if you were able to do it so um wow. so this reliance on 
um, you know, essentially slave wages overseas is a big part of the business model. And, and there is, you know, I did discover there, there was one fair trade phone, I think it was made out of the Netherlands somewhere, and it wasn't prohibitively expensive. It was, you know, several hundred dollars. But I don't, you know, I don't know if it would placate the needs of our most, you know, of our tech thirsty masses who want the latest, the best. Um, I think it's a, I think it, it's a, this, this uh, safely harvested phone is passable, but I don't think it would do, do well. It doesn't do well here in this country because yeah. nobody cares about it. Right. I think it's eye opening to see that dark side because it helps to better understand these tech lords where I think a lot of us have a very fond view of them to a degree. You can order a stapler and it will show up later today <laughs> or these different things. And so to see this dark side, I think it helps remind us to be very cautious and to understand that they are not looking out for our best interests. They are influenced by a whole host of other things and other priorities. And like you said, that ruthlessness, you had a quote in here that says, we compromise the collective soul of our society when we willfully ignore the horrors that occur and the blood that spilled just so we can have a faster phone with a better battery. Yeah. yeah so we could download some, you know, some stupid thing on Twitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, I found, I found a really uh, prophetic quote, which I discovered was an Aldous Huxley quote when he was interviewed by uh, Mike Wallace. Mike Wallace had an interview show before 60 Minutes in the late 1950s, and he was interviewing Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. Mm -hmm. And um, and I used, you know, I have it as a uh, excerpt quote in the beginning of one of my chapters where uh, Aldous Huxley says, um, I'm afraid that in this world of the future, because he was warning against this sort of technologically based society, and he was saying that we're going to be so... Um, you know, essentially seduced and lubricated. We're going to be enslaved, but we're going to like the enslavement. We're going to like conditions that we shouldn't normally like. And, and that's kind of what's happening. Um, as long as we could download fast enough and Amazon gets us our stuff on time, we don't want to know. It's kind of, we want to keep our head in the sand about it. And so as long as the streaming Netflix keeps, uh, keeps coming and Amazon keeps delivering, and my phone keeps me entertained, yeah. ignorant bliss. It's different than the Orwellian where you're on guard and you seem like mm. you know it's coming. This is, we're walking right into it all on our own. Do you think it's willful ignorance or do you think that people know, but they just don't care? Do you think it's somewhere in the middle? I, I think it's, well, I, I think it's by design, right? I think it's keep mm -hmm. the masses sedated, um, and distracted by design because look, I'm an addiction psychologist by training. And we knew yeah. we were trained early on that if you wanted to oppress a group of people, you kept, you would get them addicted to something. And uh, the one example that always stuck out in my mind that I had learned in graduate school was that during the times of American slavery, in American slavery, you would give uh, all the male slaves a bottle of moonshine every Saturday. And it wasn't as a reward for a job well done. It was the idea that if I keep you drunk and sedated, you're not going to educate, organize, revolt, or put your head up and see what the hell is happening. So now, you know, the mm -hmm. new plantation and the new moonshine is digital. And the plantation is the one that we're in because, you know, we're, we're monetized. We we're the product, you know, this has been said in a few yeah. of the, you know, we're the product that we're being monetized and they have to sort of keep us sedated and not, revolting and so the best way to do that is to keep us um addicted and lubricated about that in the orwellian thing that you're talking about it's interesting because that's happening so much right now i mean i you know my the hair on my neck goes up because i'm a free speech person i'm a i'm a i'm a i don't want to say violently but i'm a you know i'm a i'm a vehemently free speech person and and you're seeing so much um mind control happening and and you know without getting overly political right now because it could happen on both sides of the aisle but what what you're seeing now is look when i was in university or in graduate school i never heard the, the phrase misinformation disinformation never existed mm -hmm. um and you know you always had the national Enquirer that had a lot of nonsense in it and people you know trusted the reader to say you know reader beware you're going to read something that's right. going to have 
bat boy or some kind of gossip in it that may or may not be true. But nobody ever suggested that you censor the Inquirer or you you deplatform the National Inquirer where everybody knew two-thirds of the content was bogus. Right. Um, but now there's this Orwellian push to if you want to censor free the free exchange of ideas. And, and here's what there's two specific ones that got to me that that made me think, uh-oh, big big tech gatekeepers have too much uh, control and they're controlling in a very Orwellian way our dialogue. Um, when COVID first occurred, um, I got it very early on before there was testing. I got it late February, early March of 2020. And, and I'm not an, an, an epidemiologist, um, but I'm also not an idiot. And, and you know, I got sick and I didn't, nobody knew much about COVID at the time. And I remember, you know, at the time there was mainstream media was still calling it this, this virus that was coming from China. And it was the ground zero is Wuhan. And I remember they were saying, like, so wet markets, that this is species jumped in the wet market. And I remember reading a little article that said, oh, and by the way, Wuhan has the only level five virology lab in it. And, and just I remember initially just thinking, oh, okay, it's certainly very possible if this is the source of this viral contagion has begun and their only virology lab is there. It's certainly a reasonable inference to say this is a possible source of the outbreak. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was obvious to me two, almost three years ago. Then in the next few months, any epidemiologist, MD, or smart person started saying, hey, maybe this, the platform, disinformation, um, you weren't even allowed to discuss the lab leak theory until a year and a half later, when then it became, ah, you got us, uh, maybe this is a possible, if not probable, source of the contagion. At the very least, we should have been able to discuss it without being deplatformed as disinformers if we talked about it. Right. And, you know, you're seeing that a little bit of some of that now politically. Look, obviously, you can foment anger and vitriol with everything from January 6th riots. But you could also censor. Again, I'm, I grew up in New York. I read the New York Times every day, but I also read the New York Post because it has a great sports section. And, you know, right before the election, I read the Hunter Biden's laptop story by Miranda Devine. Three weeks before the election, and I said, "Huh, this seems unusually well researched, and this seems very well sourced." And the New York Post is the second oldest paper in America. And oh, look at this! The New York Post has had their account shut down now. Mm -hmm. And who decided that? And mm -hmm. some some gatekeeper at Twitter has deplatformed the second oldest newspaper. It started by Alexander Hamilton in the United States. This isn't the America that I grew up in, where. You're allowed to have conspiracy ideas. Uh, Any know, ideas. You're allowed to have ideas. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, yeah. I don't know if I mentioned this in the book. I grew up, I, I've been an insomniac for a long time. So I stay up late sometimes. It's when it's quiet and they're right. But growing up, I used to listen to Art Bell. I don't know. Do you know who Art Bell? Art Bell had a the top overnight syndicated radio show in the country for decades from like mm -hmm. the 80s to till he passed away about four or five years ago. So Art Bell on his show would have everybody from Brian Green, the physicist, to Bigfoot hunters. And it was always entertaining. He was always a thoughtful uh, host. Mm -hmm. um, and he would say, I'm not going to listener beware. You know, I'm going to present right. you some interesting guests and use your God-given abilities to discern whether, you know, you find this factual or not. And I always remembered that, that mm -hmm. nobody, Art Bell never said, uh-oh, this guy's disinformation. I'm going to decide that this person can't express yeah. his viewpoint. He trusted yeah. the listener, and that's what I'm afraid of. We're not being trusted to make our own, to discern our own opinions. And there are people who are making those decisions for us, which is troubling to me in the right. free society. Right. And, and that kind of goes along into what's interesting is this passage of time six years it's not a long passage of time from glow kids to digital digital madness and there's already been this huge jump huge set of changes what you're talking about and other things well what what's coming you talk about virtual reality headsets for cows what's down the road what's going to be the book that's coming in five or six years what is it going to be about yeah well you know i, I think the one of the foreshadowings was zuckerberg's metaverse and whether he gets that off the ground or not, it's 
right now. He's got some detractors there, but just the fact that he wants to put us all in the metaverse is troubling beyond belief. I write about Zuckerberg quite a bit in the book about his obsession with Augustus Caesar and his obsession with dominance and his obsession with um, really um, trying to be the new emperor. And, and, and there was that great Atlantic article that talked about Facebook land and you need your economy and he's got his own uh, currency now and you need, uh, you need uh, citizens and he's got more citizens than any country in the world. And his, you know, and typically if, we, in, if you were an old school um, despot or, or emperor, you needed land. And he's figured out a shortcut around that, you know, rather than physical land, let's create the metaverse. So there's things like that. I'm, I, I'm concerned that we're going to be lulled into because of ease and comfort and convenience to slip into the, something like the metaverse, whether it's the metaverse or its competitor or something like it, we're being seduced by ease and comfort into um, cages that we shouldn't be in, but we're, we're voluntarily going. And that's what I write about. We're in traditionally despotic totalitarian countries like China. They don't have to sugarcoat anything. You know, they put a gun to your head and this is what you do. And in our quote unquote free society, they have to lubricate our enslavement and, and they have to sugarcoat it for us because we've got to step into the bath willingly. Yeah. When the virtual reality cow that you mentioned, you know, I was speaking at the uh, Commonwealth Club in San Francisco in uh, 2000. My father just died, so 2019. And, um, and it was a, a conference called Humanity at a Crossroads. And there's this scientist from the Netherlands and he pops up his slide and there's like 300 people in the audience. And it's a cow in a virtual reality headset. And we're all laughing initially. And then the implications, and, and, and as he spoke in this very Germanic accent, and we put the cows in the headset. Mm -hmm. And if they think they're free range, they give more milk. And I remember that. If they think they're free range, they produce more milk. And I'm like, okay, okay. So somebody's figured out that if you lull somebody into thinking that they're free when they're not, they're going to be more productive workers, right? Whether it's a cow or not. And it was, I wrote that part of the book and then Zuckerberg announces meta and the metaverse. And I'm like, Oh, he's what, there he is. There, there's the virtual reality glasses. For giving them out for free. Giving them giving out, out for, free. for free. That's yeah. right. And, and I was able to slip that in before my final edit, because I had to connect those dots in the book and, wow. um, and yeah, that's the unsettling part that they're going to want to just keep us in virtual reality headsets and and monetizing us, you know, in in a matrix sort of way. You know, they're not maybe taking our electrical energy in the like in the matrix, but they're essentially yeah. using us as re, a, a resource to to monetize whatever the whatever they're trying to do, are. whatever they're right. yeah, whatever right. they're going for. Right. I know we're running out of time. There was one part in the book real quick that gave me chills. And I think this just translates a little bit into what the answer is. What is the cure here? What can we do? And you talked about this peer support over professional support. I thought that whole part in the book was so fascinating. And you talked about, well, you had this question, what's your boat? Mm -hmm. um, you were talking about these people that were addicted and they found this way to make it an entire multi-year project yeah. without drinking. So can you talk about that briefly? And I, I know you're going to have to go here in a minute, but about where our answers lie. And I think that part of it there is you're talking about purpose, but then you also talk a little bit about nature and you also yeah. talk about looking backwards. So just a few of the answers that. Right. What's the way out of it's the way out of the darkness. Yeah. You know, so I think the psychological, the psycho, Therapeutic industrial complex, which is, you know, the field that I've been in for a long time, I think has maybe done more harm than good because we've pathologized people and we've kept them sort of tethered to needing therapists. And, and that's not the organic way that people really got through difficulties in their lives for tens of thousands of years. We've used community and peers and elders and supports. That's the more organic way to kind of heal and move forward. But now we've sort of deputized or designated, you know, some therapist and that we have to pay, you know, I call them a renter friend. Sometimes let me pay someone to tell them about how I'm cheating on my wife or God forbid, some other stuff. And, 
So I think the we have to get beyond therapy and really lean into community again. And part of community now also connects with a sense of purpose, right? We've become purposeless humans. Um, our purpose is watching Monday Night Football or Netflix or some empty distraction, but we're not really having deeper meaning. And this, you mentioned about the guys with the boat. You know, it was the Polish priest in Poland who found out that his low-bottom alcoholic residents in his homeless shelter had no sense of a dream left. And so if we can begin to help each other, what's our dream, what's our passion, and kind of connect with that, that's curative. That can kind of get us out of the distraction game and get us into doing something more meaningful. And then the big piece that I talk about is the the answers from the ancients, um, you know, ancient classical philosophy, which I'm a student of, really created a blueprint for how to critically think, for how to be able to use our abilities to reason, um, because right now we're just emotionally diarrheing beings that are reactive and triggered and, and hyper-emotional, yet not hyper-logical. And I'm not saying that we need to become Mr. Spock. I'm not saying that we need to lose our humanity, but we also need to reclaim our ability mm. to use common sense, critically think, and analyze things, rather than just, yeah. that triggered me, I'm having an emotional response, and I'm going to use my emotions versus facts. So, so, so that, so being, so part of that is teaching kids at, at young ages in elementary schools, civics, ethics, critical thinking. Um, these are things that have been lost. Nobody teaches uh, ethical discernment. I talk about mm -hmm. this with the scientists. Right. You know, most scientists aren't trained in ethics. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about the peril um, versus yes. promise conundrum, um, a lot of these scientists who have God complexes haven't been trained in ethics. I can do this. Should I do this? Those are the questions that aren't asked. So we as a society need to start embracing these things that have been our our heritage, our ancestral heritage as Westerners um, to, to maybe dust off some of those wisdom traditions and, and really reintegrate them into our, into our DNA as we move forward because we need that insulation right now. So I talk a lot about a psychological immune system and we need to strengthen our psychological immune system by some of the things that I just mentioned. Yeah. There's wisdom in looking in the past, and I think there's a lot yeah. of pushback against that. And I don't know if that comes from the tech companies, if that's sort of a something that they have created that makes you feel odd if you say, well, let's look toward the past. And you even ended near the near the end of the book. He's falling into that old trap of glorifying and romanticizing right. the past. And you say, yes, I am. And this paragraph is so phenomenal. The digital age has stripped away critical and sanity sustaining dynamics that were once prevalent and now don't exist. We need experiences that nurture our ability to be patient. Instead, we have Twitter. We need real hand-eye experiences. Instead, we have gaming. We need face-to-face -face interpersonal social experiences. Instead, we have social media. We need nature immersion, immersive experiences. Instead, we have some pictures of nature on Instagram that just does not cut it if we want to be truly healthy, strong, and happy. Wow. This book is phenomenal phenomenal i know that we are out of time barely scratched the surface because there is so much in here digital madness how social media is driving our mental health crisis and how to restore our sanity this podcast posts the day after the book launches so people will be able to find it and i'm sure it will be everywhere thank you thank you for your time thank you for these works it's so much work to write a book these works that are helping families and helping people be more human. Humanity is worth yeah. fighting for. There's so much in right. this book. Thank you for adding in that humor that that keeps you flipping the pages and helps you to laugh. And thank you again for taking this time. Yeah, with me and Jenny, thank you for your thoughtfulness and for doing what you do because we're all in this fight together because it is the fight for our humanity and to mm -hmm. for our family. So thank you as well. Everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? 
gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact invented. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It.